Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to The Word in Your Ear. We, you know, we're constantly in a process of living and learning in these strange times. Normally, Word in Your Ear is taking place in the, in the stable surroundings of the Islington in London, swinging Islington in person. But, uh, but obviously, we can't do that at the moment. And so I'm delighted to say that roughly about the same time we would ordinarily be welcoming a guest in the Islington, we can, we can welcome Joe Banks. To, to this special online word in your ear. Joe, if Joe looks slightly glowing, viewers, <laughs> this is because he's had to just uh, relocate this whole thing from the top of his massive house down to the basement to be big. near the roof. It's all right. I won't read it. <laughs> it's not I drink several <laughs> bottles of lager exactly. on the already had yeah, three yeah. bottles of lager on the process. <laughs> yeah, just to get just to get into shape. Uh, to talk <laughs> now about, I have a signal. You look yes. crystal clear. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and uh, so, so Joe's book, it, to give it its full title, is is Hawkwind: Days of the Underground, subtitled "Radical Escapism in the Age of Paranoia." And uh, it, it's out now, Joe. Is that right? It is out now. Um, okay. So uh, just a little, a little bit on that. So here is here is the book. Oh, it's right there it is. We've only got we've only got virtual copies. We've, we've only got, got virtual PDFs. copies. This is the hardback. There was a hardback special edition which was um, released by the publisher last month uh, of uh, a run of five hundred copies, and that's actually now sold out. That's hardback, oh, and it wow. came with all kinds of gobbins. The paperback. Um, should be available in the next two to three weeks, um, right. despite what Amazon says at the moment. If you go on their site, it's claiming that it's out of stock and may never be in stock ever again. But it uh, actually hasn't <laughs> officially been released. But it is, it is going to be available in two to three weeks. Um, it's actually on a ship from Estonia at the moment. It was oh, really? printed in. Yes, yeah, it's, it's printed in Estonia, and it has to go all the way to New York um, to then go to Penguin's Global Distribution Center. And it's then probably going to be distributed mostly back to the UK. But that's, that's uh, unfortunately the most what... analog thing I've ever heard in my life. It, it is. It's, it's not wonderful. the air miles are not good there. 
Joe, we have a traditional question we always ask people when they're first uh, our guest on Word in Your Ear okay. is can you describe the music playing machinery that was available in your home as a child? Can you remember what there was? Was there a record player, cassette player, wind up gramophone, whatever? What was that? Yeah, so, um, so I guess that the kind of main thing would be a, a, a record player which was in our front room. But it was one of those record players which was disguised as a piece of furniture, um, oh, right. in this kind of large wooden box. So you had to pull almost down almost a radiogram. Yeah, it wasn't actually. We had a radiogram, I think, in the dining room. But this was actually like a customized piece of furniture. So a big wooden box, and you opened it up, and lo and behold, there were a load of records, and uh, there was a, a, a kind of record player with uh, the the arm where it kind of you could stack the records, and right. so. From a, from a fairly early age, I was rifling through my brother's single collections, stacking those up, and uh, and yeah, so so totally vinyl to begin with. Right. So when did Hawkwind first enter your life? Well, I'm a kind of classic case of somebody who has an, an older brother um, with a with an interesting record collection, and so probably from quite an early age, kind of seven, eight, or nine, I would be hearing all this music coming through his bedroom wall, and a lot of it was uh, classic rock groups like. You know, Pink Floyd and uh, Deep Purple Queen, but he had a copy of um, Warrior on the Edge of Time. All right. It wasn't this copy, but this is Warrior on the Edge of Time. Right. So okay. And um, he uh, and and that compared to all of the other music um, that I was kind of hearing was something quite quite different. It was um, kind of hard to describe, but it, it certainly it wasn't the same kind of you know, kind of strutting, hard-loving riffs of, of Deep Purple. It was something more mysterious, something stranger. That particular album has um, it has a number of spoken word pieces on it, for instance, which is a, a nine-year-old kind of hearing these kind of, you know, kind of quite apocalyptic spoken word pieces with all of the, the kind of weird kind of dark ambient backing was, was actually quite, quite frightening, but it, very compelling as well. It was one of those albums where I was thinking, there's, even as a nine-year-old, I could tell that there was something different going on here. And so that was my, my first encounter with Hawkwind. Um, and when I was a bit older um, and started buying records myself, my brother said, oh, you should get Silver Machine, which I got uh, and wasn't particularly impressed with. I was thinking, well, it's a bit like status quo, but not, not as good. Um, but I persevered. Oh, and um, I know, exactly. Um, so I persevered though, and we had a, a local record library, which obviously has some quite enlightened uh, employees, and they had a copy in there of um, Space Ritual, which is right. the um, Hawkins live album from 1973, which if you talk to people such as myself, uh, they will tell you was the greatest live album ever made. And again, okay. that is uh, an experience that once heard is, is never forgotten. It was, again, completely... It was, you know, it's rock music, but it's completely different from the other stuff I might have been listening to at the time, you know, which was, uh, you know, things like Rainbow and Judas Priest and stuff like okay. that. I'm from the East Midlands, and so heavy metal is in my blood. But kind of hearing something <laughs> of like Space Ritual, you know, was <laughs> was just something else. It's uh, it's it's a mind-blowing experience. And for anybody who happens not to have ever heard Space Ritual, it's one of those things where, you know, you're in for an ex really in for something kind of different there you know not something you'll have ever heard before i can guarantee and also that also had lots of um spoken word stuff on it as well which you know really emphasized that here was something 
not like your standard rock gig, not like your standard rock band. And, you know, I, I won't claim to have immediately had some kind of, you know, Damascan revelation. Um, but after a few plays, it was like, oh, my God, yeah, this is it. This is this right. is the thing. I've, I've found my thing. So this well, is the... You've you received them. Go on. Do what stage do you ever see them? So the first time I actually saw them, I think, was in 1985. So the book that um, uh, I've written is specifically about their classic 1970s period, if you like. So I actually didn't see them at the time, but they were still, you know, uh, a a kind of, you know, a a quite a different experience from any other band that you could possibly go and see in 1985. And so... Yeah, I saw them, you know, quite a lot around that period for a few years and then, you know, moved on to other things. But, you know, certainly I think probably from 2000 onwards, I've very much kind of gone back into their path, into their orbit. And, uh, you know, and seen them quite a few times since then and uh, have just slowly but surely become kind of utterly obsessed with them. Certainly that period. Let's go back to the beginning. The, The story, they're very clearly associated with one particular patch of London, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, that's story, right. Tell us about this. The story begins in Labrook Grove. Yeah, the story begins in Labrook Grove. So I guess um, when you're thinking about the counterculture um, in Britain, there's uh, it, it's easy to kind of think of psychedelia on Carnaby Street and maybe kind of uh, Kings Road in, in Chelsea and Soho. But actually, uh, the real action, uh, countercultural action, was happening in Labrook Grove in in West London, because this is actually where a lot of the bands were were living and, and rehearsing. For instance, like somebody like Pink Floyd um, did a lot of rehearsals and a lot of early shows in that area. Uh, it's because, you know, at the time, you know, Notting Hill now is pretty much a byword for gentrification. But at the, but at the time, and it's little better than a slum. Yeah. Um, but it did mean that it was possible to you know, get cheap housing pretty much within walking distance of the centre of London. So, you know, you get a lot of kind of art students and people like that moving in, but you also get lots and lots of kind of musicians. And so, you know, Hawkwind were part of that milieu, um, if you like. And I guess Dave Brock, who is, is the main guy in Hawkwind, um, lived around there. He was a busker. He would he would kind of busk uh, in Labrook Grove as well as, you know, busking to the, the West End uh, cinema queues. But... Um, he gradually, over time, decided that he'd been in kind of psychedelic bands before, blues bands before, but he wanted to do something different. And uh, Lambert Grove was was the place where he he kind of hatched those dreams, if you like. Uh, lots of the other guys uh, who ended up in the band were also in, in Lambert Grove. And then you have the what I refer to as the Hawkwind creation myth in August 1969, when they've only really been together for a few months. They're kind of jamming, they're kind of working out their sound. But, you know, already they're, they're quite different from other bands. And I de- describe them as barbarian psychedelia with all of their kind of raw electronic effects as well. And anyway, they, they see literally that this gig is being staged in the All Saints Hall in um, Labrook Grove, basically the, the myth is that they go along and they gate crush it and they say, come on, guys, give us a go. You know, we just want to play for 15 minutes beforehand. And uh, the promoter go, mm, all right, I suppose so. And they play this 15 minutes set and it's it's 15 minutes of this kind of heavy acid riff rock, you know, quite different from all of the other stuff that's being played at the time. And it just so happens that John Peel is in the audience that night. And uh, he says to the promoter as he's going out, he's saying, that first band, 
you know, you should think about getting involved with them. And uh, the promoter, a guy called Doug Smith, does indeed uh, become involved with them, becomes their manager, and the, the whole story goes from there, really. Complete pivot, um, isn't it? Amazing. It, it, it is. I mean, whether or not that was actually the case, I mean, people subsequently <laughs> have said, oh, no, we didn't game crash yet. I think we were booked to play that gig. And, oh, it wasn't yeah, our first let's say, game. It, let's, say it before, it's like, <laughs> let's say it is. Let's say it is, because, you know, a, it's a great story. Are a band with a you know any band with a very strong mythic dimension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's important yeah. that they have this creation myth. So there, there were a number of bands in that kind of scene at the time. Uh, I don't know. I remember people like Quintessence and and so forth. Yeah, but Pink Fairies. Hulk, yeah, yeah. Hulk, yeah, the Pink Fairies. Yeah. Hulkwind really they survived that, didn't they? Whereas most of these groups didn't. What do what do you think it was about them, even from early on, that gave them that that um, tenacity <laughs> um I, I think it it really is kind of a, a question of, of of perseverance in a way um i mean hawkwind played anywhere um i mean they played underneath you know they played gigs underneath the arches of the west way they played any benefit gig going they didn't just play in london i mean from very early on as well they're traveling out into the into the provinces and building up a following and um, and as I said, they they fall in with Doug Smith early on, and he is instrumental in very quickly getting them a, a record deal with um, Liberty Records, which at the time, which then becomes United Artists. So they 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 kind of very quickly become recording artists as well. And you know, the first album comes out, and by then they've got a, a pretty big following. It gets pretty good reviews, and it and it goes from there. Um, and you're right, though. I mean, in a way, why did they persist, and, and other bands? didn't i mean quintessence certainly were a much bigger band at the time when they when they started but quintessence were you know very clearly tied to a specific era, um you know era if you like you know because they were all about integrating kind of indian ideas and, and 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 kind of music into what they were doing whereas hawkman were creating something completely new um right. the point i make in the book continually is there is no other band who sound like hawkwind in 1969 or kind of in 1975, or even in 1980, they they exist in a genre of one throughout but the 1970s. But they also had huge kind of grassroots loyal support, didn't they? Because I I get the impression that that, that you know they, they're becoming a band of the people, if you if you like. With a lot of that yeah. to do with the fact that they 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 didn't seem to fit in. They looked like outsiders, and the rock press didn't. I don't remember them really liking them. The rock press yeah. were obsessed with this idea of virtuoso musicians, and there weren't yeah. any virtuoso musicians in all. Yeah. Were, no, that, that is. You know, that and, is exactly and that, oh, the point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, Hawkwind kind of demonstrate that you don't have to be, you know, kind of Keith Emerson or Rick Wakeman yeah. or you know, kind of whatever. You don't have to be a master of your instrument to to kind of, you know, make music that people like. And it's interesting, that expression of people's band, as you say, that started cropping up a lot in the music press reports. And this is often like a backhanded compliment. It basically says... We don't think you're very good. We don't particularly yeah. like your music, but we acknowledge that a lot of people. But people are going don't to know any think. better. A lot, of, a lot of our <laughs> readers like you. That's probably yeah. what it means that we don't want to disrespect you too much. Yeah. Exactly. It is. But I mean, you know, you, you see that um, classically also with somebody like Black Sabbath, another band yeah. who, you know, sold vast amounts of, you know, kind of albums and played to massive crowds. But the, the press just didn't really understand why. They couldn't understand why they were popular. In fact, you know, as the 70s progress, you know, it goes from amusement to actually outright anger that a band yeah. can play this kind of music and attract this level of crowd. It's like, well, why? Why are you going to see it? 
And this was a real disconnect between the music press and, and what Hawkwind were doing. And we can talk about this later, but I mean, this is something which feeds directly into Hawkwind's influence then on punk. Because right. all of these, a lot of the people yeah. who were going to see Hawkwind, who the music press are saying, we don't understand why you're going to see Hawkwind, were then the people who went on to, to form the first wave of punk band. Now, you'll no doubt be amazed to hear that earlier today, I asked Alexa to play Hawkwind. And what did Alexa choose to play first? Obviously, Silver Machine. Silver Machine. So Silver Machine is an extraordinary phenomenon, isn't it, really? Because yeah. it's a completely one-off. It was a top three hit, is that right? Yeah, it was a number. It was a number three for a couple of weeks, um, and it was on the charts of something like fifteen weeks. I mean, it sells about half a million copies in the UK alone. It goes on to sell a million. It's a big hit all around the world. Oh, really, uh, not just in Britain. Uh, I mean, it gets the number one in Switzerland, for instance. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's a big record across all of all of Europe, um, in, in in parts of kind of, you know, kind of Africa. Even it's a hit. Um, <laughs> But you're right, it's a complete anomaly. Um, they, it was originally like a, a live recording which from the Roundhouse in early 72, which they, they overdubbed and released. And, and it enters the charts, I think in July 1972, purely based on the fact that by this point, they're a very, very big underground band and everybody goes out and buys it. But then um, people like Jimmy Young and Tony Blackburn start playing it on Radio One. <laughs> and before you know it, it's taken off and it's become this absolute phenomenon. And a lot of that, for instance, is to do with the classic um, clip that you can find online of, of, of them playing, not on Top of the Pops, but a promo that was done for Top of the Pops uh, in a concert hall in Dunstable, I think it is. Um, and it's incredible, particularly because there's so little footage of Hawkwind in the 1970s, which is another story in itself. But this is an amazing piece of film uh, and it airs on top of the pops the week after um, David Bowie has done his favorite, um, famous Starman performance, which outrages everybody or kind of converts everybody or subverts everybody. But then you have this the week after. You have this incredible clip of Hawkwind on, on top of the pops, which in my mind probably turned just as many people's heads, maybe not the same people, but it is this idea of the underground suddenly spilling out into your front room for four minutes. And it's, yeah. it's an incredible piece of uh, film. Now, the other thing that connects, where, where, where does Stacia and so forth fit into this era? Because Stacia was another figure who, who you know, meant a lot to people who, who weren't particularly in the Hawkwind camp. That, that was a major that? changing point, wasn't it? Because I mean, suddenly they got all this publicity. And also mm. you have to admire the fact that they were so kind of, uh, you know, flexible in, the, in, in their outlook. They, they, they took, you know, members of their road crew and promoted them into the lineup. And they took Stacey, who I think was just a girl they invited up on stage to, to dance with them one night. And two weeks later, she was virtually in the band. And that's, a, that's a, right. an astonishing way. I mean, how many bands did things like that? It was amazing. Well, 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 this is it. I mean, if you look at it, so, you know, so much of the stuff they did was a bit like kind of, oh, you know, kind of this guy can play a bit of saxophone, fire enough, you're in the band. Or yeah. this guy's got this kind of audio generator, which is like a signal testing equipment for radio valves. OK, yeah, you can come join in the band. And you're right. And then I think Stacia, um, she herself actually... I think she's met Nick Turner at the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970. And anyway, when they play down in um, Cornwall in uh, Red Roof near to where she lives, she says, oh, you know, I remember me. Can I get up and dance with you? And uh, they say something like, mm, oh, only if you take your clothes off. And she's like, yeah, all right. 
and uh, you know it goes from there basically and uh and yeah, hashtag different times yes. different times but you're oh right God. i mean stacia made an enormous impression on uh on kind of a lot of the people who went to see hawkwind um you know for, for obvious reasons in a way but also because it, it's another way that defined hawkwind as kind of different from a traditional kind of rock band Completely. you have this incredible light show you have you know these readings uh, breaking up songs but then you also have Stacey who's doing this in interpretive dancing and sometimes she's naked sometimes she's not but she's always got incredible makeup and hair and costumes and yeah i mean that that's just another kind of way that hawkwind you know are defined against everybody else but uh, i guess kind of she really comes into her own after, or in, in the Silver Machine promo, she's actually uh, pretty much the lead figure in it. She's I was going to say, yes, she is, yeah. yeah, so, um, but then after Silver Machine, what that enables them to do, because they actually, for once, make a lot of money, is that it, they can then put on this um, tour that they've been talking about for a while, the Space Ritual Tour, which is this, like, multimedia extravaganza, certainly for 1972, where... You not only have Stacia dancing, you have a couple of other dancers. You have the most incredible kind of light show. You have the readings. You have, you know, people go and there's free programs given out and joysticks and God knows what else. And this really, really kind of does, you know, cement their reputation. It's like nearly two hours of almost... And it's a major piece of kind of rock theatre, isn't it? You know? Yeah, rock theatre is exactly what it is. Yeah. What do you you think were were the newest and most original elements about that stage show? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, I think that certainly um, the lighting um, and, and the kind of a, a slide effects that they had was a, was a big deal. There was probably only Pink Floyd who were putting on a light show of that type. So, you know, when, in an age when kind of rock bands still played with a few follow spots and some yeah, lights and, and that was it. I mean, you're talking about an absolute, you know, kind of barrage of kind of lights and images and very primitive kind of animation uh, and films and I mean the whole thing about Hawkwind is that they are certainly at the start against the star trip as they call it and so they almost step back from yes. the front of the stage and yeah. they yeah. want yeah. the imagery they want the dancers and they want the light show to be the focus of what they're doing and they're kind of just providing the music but then the other big um, element of the space ritual is um, uh, uh, the poet uh, the poems the readings and these are by a guy called Robert Calvert. And Robert Calvert drifts into their orbit fairly early on. And, you know, at the start, they're playing this, you know, kind of mantric, riff-focused music. And 
his friend Nick Turner says, well, we play space rock. And he thinks hmm, that's an interesting idea. And he's been writing kind of science fiction stories and poetry. And he basically starts performing with them. And by the time they get to space ritual, he has conceptualized the whole thing. It's meant to be this conceptual show about a, a, a team of starfarers in suspended animation. And this is meant to be all the dreams that they're having in deep space. And so you've, you've, you've got that as a framing device, but then you've also got Calvert delivering these kind of incredible um, poems, uh, the most famous one of which is Sonic Attack, um, a, a poem actually written by Michael Moorcock, who is a, another guy who has drifted yeah. into their orbit as an ideas man. But um, Sonic Attack is, is, is a definitive kind of Hawkwind track. It's like the parody of a public animation film, uh, but it's absolutely terrifying, particularly when you think that a lot of people would have been on some kind of uh, high, some kind of, you know, the music is one thing, but then suddenly having this guy haughtily uh, reading out this apocalyptic poem and telling everybody, do not panic, think only of yourself, um, must have been kind of quite something, quite, quite, quite a spectacle, I think. They, they were extended, the kind of Hawkwind brand, I'm sure they wouldn't have described it as such, was kind of extended into books, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the whole multimedia aspect of the show is, is obviously a very important thing for Hawkwind. But, I mean, as I held up before, I mean, if you look at the, um, the album sleeves, for instance, that they have, I mean, they have these amazing kind of album sleeves. Yeah. Um, this is kind of, in search of space, as you see, it's kind of, which you probably can't see, it folds out and then just comes down. And then you have the Hawk log inside, which is uh, very important. We'll maybe talk about that in a moment. But, um, yeah, so they basically develop what I call a mythos around them. They have this kind of story uh, around them in various kind of sleeve notes and stories that are published um, in the underground press about them being kind of spacefaring saviors who have come to kind of save the Earth from itself. You know, it's it's kind of, it's also linked in, I guess, with the, the whole Eric Van Daniken thing that's happening at the time, you know, the ancient astronauts. And it culminates in... Um, uh, a couple of books which are actually written <laughs> about them, which are, here we go, Time of the Hawk Lords and Queens of, Queen of, uh, Queens of Deliria. Deliria. Um, and so Hawkwind appear in these books as these kind of superhero figures, the last band on Earth in this post-apocalyptic um, scenario, um, fighting against um, the death generator, which is at the Earth's core and has caused all <laughs> of these bad vibes throughout history to pollute people's minds and only Hawkwind as the uh, the reincarnation of the uh, the mythic Hawk Lords can can combat this so it's it's kind of all set in the future and it's almost 250 pages of the stuff um and it's it's quite something I mean it's got Michael Moorcock's name on the front but it was actually this guy a guy called Michael Butterworth who was a, a kind of younger friend of Moorcock who actually wrote them and uh, they were the first novels he'd ever written and I think I, as I say in the book they, they're kind of a cross between a kind of pulp thriller, um, a kind of new wave sci-fi novel and uh, a kind of fan's review of their favourite band. Um, it's, they're, they're, they're quite mind-blowing to read. They're not great literature, but whatever bands were having these kind of books up, written yeah. about them. And it yeah. shored yeah. up the idea that they were part of some kind of science fiction concept, really, weren't they? That's right. I mean, that's, 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 that's the other... Space that's the other key stuff. element. Yeah. yeah, that's the key element of, of, of Hawkwind other than the, the actual... Uh, the time, the nature of the music um, is also their close association with with science fiction. Yeah. Um, Robert Calvert, as I say, you know, had had written 
poetry and science fiction stories. Michael Moorcock was one of the major figures in the British science fiction scene. And, you know, people like Barney Bob was producing this amazing science yeah. fiction influenced uh, artwork yeah. for them. And this becomes both their kind of blessing and their curse. I mean, certainly early on, a lot of people think, wow, this is amazing space rock, yeah. amazing covers, man. But as the, as the decade progresses, and certainly once you pass the 70s, you know, for a lot of people, it's a bit like, oh, as Lenny says, isn't this just Star Trek with long hair? Um, but, you know, good on them. They, they do something different with science fiction as the decade progresses. Um, I mean, from 1976, Robert Calvert, who leads the band for a bit, but then totally goes back in control by 1976. He's their front man. And he starts to have a much more sophisticated take on science fiction. And a lot of his lyrics are... They're science fiction influence, but they're, they're very subversive. They're about social comments as well. Um, you know, really fascinating lyrics. And so, you know, it's not just about aliens and spaceships and robots. It's, 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 it's about something a lot deeper. Uh, and I think that was, I mean, in the same way that if you think of somebody like David Bowie, I mean, a lot of his lyrics in the 1970s are very sci-fi influenced as well. Um, he just kind of perhaps hid it a bit better, but Hawkwind we are a bit more overt about it. But it's the same kind of idea. Did the, do you think that the kind of so-called kraut rock got some of the respect that Hawkwind should have got, but that Hawkwind didn't get because they were, they were British, whereas kraut yeah. rock groups, you didn't know what they were on about most of the time? I think so. I mean, it, it, it's interesting that um, people these days kind of sometimes have this kind of revelation and go, well, hang on a sec. I mean, Hawkwind sound pretty much like kraut rock, don't they? And it's like, yes, they do. It was actually quite well acknowledged in the early 70s there were quite a few people who who said well you know kind of there's canon as Amon Duel but actually can Hawkwind are quite similar but as you say quite quickly and and I think the science fiction thing definitely has an influence here Hawkwind has seemed to be not hip you know whereas people like can Amon Duel as I say they're, they're a bit more mysterious they're not singing about kind of science fiction but the actual music itself is is definitely in the same area but whereas in Germany you have an entire scene um, you know, are based around crowd rock, and it, it stretches from Can and Noi to people like Kraftwerk and Tangerine Dream. In the UK, you don't have anything. You don't have anything like that. The only thing you have is Hawkwind. But right, in, the, in the seventies, I mean, there's a bit you quote from Richard Williams and, and Melody Maker talking about in the rush to applaud the Amon duels and cans from across the water. We've all tended to forget the profits on our own backyard. So at the yeah. time, they were recognised, but that's kind of disappeared now, isn't it? Yeah, and, exactly. And they, yeah. So they just don't. They're just not seem to be part of that kind of legacy, really. Well, I, I think it, I think these days people kind of are acknowledging it more. But I mean, you know, Hawkwind have had. You know, some, their wilderness years were pretty long, let's put it like that, you yeah, know, yeah. certainly critically speaking. I mean, the fans have always been there. They've always been able to sell records. But, I mean, critically speaking, they, they were just kind of nowhere for a long time. Whereas, yeah. as I say, now you get more of a generation of people coming through who are willing to kind of say, well, yes, absolutely. You know, this is the UK equivalent of, of kraut rock. Absolutely it is. But as, as I make the point, it's so mysterious to me that they were the only band doing this. You know, crowd rock, to say it's become so influential on modern alternative music, has practically no influence on British bands in the 70s until you get right to the end of the, um, the decade and you've got people, you know, kind of like, obviously, Joy Division and OMD and people like that picking up on the more electronic aspects of, of, of crowd rock. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not a thing. I mean, people, people go and see, I mean, Cam toured regularly uh, in the early 70s in the UK. I mean, they had an audience, but nobody went away thinking, great, let's form a band like Cam. Now, um, 
That's yeah. true. That's a really good point. <laughs> and yeah. was, Why not? No, I suppose possibly they didn't have the technology. I don't know. It's an inter- interesting point. So, I mean, how long have Hawkwind been going? Because they, they still exist yeah. to this day. So mm-hmm. what are we talking about? 1967 up to now. Is that fair enough? And, 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 and you know, in business all that time? Well, yeah, I mean, they officially, officially start in 69, but uh, there, there is a point actually quite interesting. In, um, in March 1978, they do a fairly disastrous um, American tour, and at this point they split up. Right. Um, they don't split up for very long, but they do kind of split up, and then they reform a few, um, a few months later as, uh, as a band. Sorry, they reform as, as the Hawk Lords, right. and they release oh, yes. this kind of album, which... As you can see, it's, it's quite different from uh, yes. from kind of the other stuff they've been doing. And um, but they then become Hawkwind again um, in 1979. And from that point onwards, yeah, absolutely, they are, are, are around releasing music. Even though you know, from 1982 onwards, they're not on a major label. You know, they're on indie labels. They form their own label. Um, they're currently on Cherry Red. Um, and they've just kept on going. And, and there's always been a fan base there for them. You know, able to support them. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is to do with this early myth-making, if you like, this early sense of the audience being part of the show and being part of the mythos with Hawkwind. Yeah. So many people bought into that. Uh, they just kind of wanted to keep going with it. You know, people sense that this is something different. As I, as I say, they're, they're the alternative to the alternative. They always have been. Now we you get a lot of people talking about. Sorry, just say you get a lot of people who, who, who the fans of that time talking about, you know, the Vic Reeves, people like that, Johnny Rotten, because you know Johnny Rotten, they reformed the Sex Pistols, played Silver Machine, mm-hmm. so that's got to help, hasn't it, bringing them back into the frame? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, just kind of people kind of thinking, oh, well, Johnny Rotten was a, a fan, you know, that was a revelation yeah. in it in itself. But um, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, a lot of the uh, early punk figures had all been kind of big Hawkwind fans and not just in London. I mean, you had people like Pete Shelley, who was a massive yeah. uh, Hawkwind fan in Manchester, Buscots. You had Stephen Morris and Peter Hook from, from Joy Division uh, were, were huge Hawkwind fans. And, and personally, if you listen to some of those, the Joy Division recordings, things like 24 hours, I think you can hear a Hawkwind influence in that. Yeah. Uh, and people like uh, Richard H. Kirk, Cabaret Voltaire in Sheffield. So, you know, the electronic side of things had a real, big effect and you suddenly realize that Hawkwind aren't this kind of footnote but they're an actual integral part of the story of British music in the 1970s particularly as it goes on to uh, influence punk. Now yeah. we, de- we deliberately kept off the complications of the extraordinary lineups changes <laughs> over, the, over the years because it would, it would require peat frame and all and a huge great wall. I would <laughs> the wall of the family tree yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but you know, 39 members, was it? I can't remember. I think it's more. There was 50. Is it, is it 15? Did you say 59? It's a lot. It's a lot of members. Yeah, uh, a lot of members, yeah. So who's the who's the key figure nowadays? Okay, so Dave Brock is, is still very much the captain of the ship. I mean, from really from, from 1980 onwards. I mean, he, he was always the guy who was the... Excuse me, uh, just... Uh, oh. Sorry. We lost him. We, we, I know, sorry. <laughs> sorry, we've just got a, we've literally just got a new puppy and he was just walking, uh, oh! walking over. 
some of my valuable artifacts, which I must put up here. No, um, <laughs> sorry. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, all the time. I mean, yeah. Dave Brock has basically been the main guy in a way all along. Although the the, the band is a lot more communal. And, um, um, keep away from them. <laughs> <Thank you, Doc>. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a lot more communal during the 70s. You know, there's a lot more kind of input from the other members. But from about 1980 onwards, he he is the main guy and he still is the main guy. And, you know, he has his own studio down in his his farm, uh, his homestead in in Devon. And so he's able to just kind of keep on producing music. And, um, you know, he, he obviously kind of has a band around him. But um, but he's it's it's very much kind of Dave Brock's vision these days. Whereas, as I say, in the 1970s, it would probably be somebody like Robert Calvert, who overall had the wider vision, even if Brock was still writing most of the music. Right, right. So they'll keep they'll keep going. There will be a Hawkwind as long as there's breath in their body. Apparently, well, it's an interesting question because. Um, um, when I, I spoke to Dave Brock a, a couple of times during the writing of the book and I, I asked him, it was around the same time, I think I just reviewed the last Gong album. Now, if you might, you may know, Gong uh, are another band who uh, aren't necessarily, they don't necessarily sound like Hawkwind, but they're very much in the same kind of bracket yeah, for a lot yeah. of people. Um, but and David Allen was the, uh, the main guy behind them. Um, but I mean, he died a few years ago. But he had said to the guys who he was in the band with at the time, I want you to carry this on. Oh, I want really? Gong to continue. So Gong has continued and in my, you know, possibly controversial opinion, are a much better band now. I mean, their last two albums are absolutely brilliant. I mean, they're stonking albums. But they are a band who have continued without any original members. And, you know, they basically, the idea that Gong is, an idea, is, a, is a concept that can be carried forward. And so I asked Dave Brock this, I said... Have you, you know, it's a bit of a difficult conversation to say, you know, hey, Dave, when you die, it's all here to continue. But, you know, Will the band sound better? This is what Gong have done, you know. And he was like, well, yeah, maybe. So I have a feeling that it's, it is difficult because I think Dave is such a, a dominant figure within their whole sound and yeah. philosophy these days. I think it may be difficult for, for them to have pulled off what Gong have done because Gong have also some very strong characters in there who weren't in the original band but have, have continued to sound. I'm not so sure with, with Hawkwind, but it is incredible. I mean, Dave Brock is going to be 80 uh, next year. Oh, really? um, That's amazing. He's, there's, a, there's actually a, a little um, a short story about the, or short piece on the, the new Hawkwind album, or rather the Hawkwind Light Orchestra album in uh, this month's Mojo. And there's a picture of Dave in the in the studio. And uh, I was actually just showing this to a friend. And I was saying, look, Dave Brock is 79. Like, what? You've got to be joking. And he does look very, very good for his age. He looks like a man possibly, you know, in his 50s or 60s. So which is incredible when you think of the amount of abuse that he must have given his body. They're not for the acid diet that he was on. <laughs> God knows yeah, I mean, years. because, you know, famously, obviously, Lemmy was a member of the band and Lemmy had this reputation for, you know, being Mr. Indestructible. Yeah. But unfortunately, you know, could have uh, the, the Reaper caught up with him. But Dave Brock is actually is the man who, who literally does seem to be indestructible and, and almost uh, uh, immortal. I mean, it's in, incredible because, I mean, he's... As I say, he's 79 and he's not only, you know, looking still very fit, but he's 
he's still producing like you know, double albums of music as he's just well i i think it would be the most uh, you know, thing in, most in keeping with their kind of alternative uh, you know, mission if they could keep going even when they all shuffle off this mortal coil <laughs> if hawkwind still keep going and um, and I hope you'll you'll be there to continue to document it, Joe. Probably, uh, yes, I'll still be there. There'll be further volumes, no doubt, to follow this. This story, <laughs> this story is not over, I'm sure. So it, the book's called Hawkwind: Days of the Underground, and mm -hmm. uh, as soon as that container ship gets over from New York or wherever it is. Estonia. Estonia. When it, yeah. when, it, when it hits Groundfall in New York, it hits the distribution centre. Two or three weeks' time, everybody can buy it. Yeah, Everybody can buy it. Well, thanks very much indeed for talking to us. And, no problem. Uh, Thank you. And all the very best with it. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thanks for having Thank me you. on. Thank all you. right. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.